So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open with me to uh, initially to Mark chapter 9. Eventually we're going to land in John chapter 11. But if we begin with me in Mark chapter 9, there, there's a, uh, a story here in Mark 9 where uh, a loving father uh, is very concerned for his son. Uh, and uh, his son uh, is demon-possessed. Uh, and the, this demon continues to cause uh, seizures and uh, casting the, the boy down. Uh, and the father is looking for help. Uh, and he's, he's even more concerned because as he brought his son to the disciples of Jesus, uh, the disciples weren't able uh, to cast out this demon. And so uh, the, the father now is coming to Jesus directly for help. If you, if you pick things up in verse uh, 20 uh, with me there in Mark chapter 9. And, and they brought the boy to him, speaking of Jesus. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And I think in our, in our honest moments, I think we would all admit to being like this father in his last statement. He says, I do believe, but at the same time, help my unbelief. And we all have, uh, say, little bits of unbelief swimming about in our hearts. Right? And in those moments of questioning, doubting, or even ignoring God and His Word, at different times throughout the day, we are wrestling with the unbelief uh, within our souls. As J.C. Ryle uh, puts it, uh, that Christians are a strange mixture of grace and weakness. Amen? Or even as we were uh, reading uh, recently in Romans chapter 7, going through our, our reading plan. Now, Romans 7, we see the Apostle Paul uh, talking about his own battle against his flesh. Uh, even though uh, he has been uh, saved, even though he has uh, put to death the deeds of the flesh and now is presenting himself as a, a slave of righteousness, a slave of Christ, he says this in Romans chapter 17, verses 18 and 19. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. Now that, that's the, the battle that we have uh, with uh, sin in our flesh. That's the, the battle that we have uh, with unbelief in our souls. And as we, uh, the longer we walk with Jesus, uh, the, the battle uh, doesn't cease, but it, it changes the, the, the front battle line. Uh, the front battle line moves from being external uh, to being internal. You know, because as we, as we grow with Christ, our, our outward sin diminishes, but we become more and more aware of the sin that resides within our heart. And this passage that we're going to, to study this morning is intended to grow our faith. Uh, it is intended to help our unbelief. By teaching us both what faith is and what it is not. 
If you turn with me uh, from Mark chapter 9 over to uh, where we're going to study this morning in John chapter 11. Now, we've been there the last couple of weeks, uh, and uh, we have seen uh, at the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 through 6 that uh, Jesus has a, a very close friend. Uh, they call him uh, the one whom you love, Lazarus. Uh, messengers bring word to, to Jesus, and they say, Lazarus is sick. The implication is, come quickly. He's not doing well. We need you to intervene. Uh, and Jesus, because he, he loves Lazarus uh, and his two sisters, Martha and Mary, because he loves them so much, when he gets this news, he waits two more days where he is. Now, he doesn't leave. He doesn't go anywhere. He waits. And then in verses 7 to 16, which we looked at last Sunday, uh, we, we saw that after those two days, Jesus speaks with his disciples and says, all right, now, now let's head out. Now let's go down to Judea. And the disciples are very aware of what uh, a dangerous proposition that is. Say, hey, Jesus, don't you remember last time we were there, they were trying to kill you. Now, you, you claim to be equal with God, uh, and the Jews were ready to stone you in the temple. And we had this miraculous escape, and now we've had to flee up into the wilderness. And now, Jesus, you want us to go back down to Bethany, which is just a, a short distance away from Jerusalem? And Jesus says, yes. Walk with me into danger. Let's go uh, and let's raise Lazarus. We saw Thomas say, all right, let's go with him so that we can die with him. And we come this morning, we're going to be studying verses 17 to to 27. And uh, and verses 17 to 19 really set the stage uh, and, and tell us what is taking place when Jesus finally arrives on the scene in Bethany. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so what we see is that uh, it it took uh, several days for Jesus to to travel down to Bethany. Uh, And when he finally enters into the town... Uh, Lazarus has been dead and buried for four days. Uh, and it was the practice in the, in, the, in the Middle East at that point in time because of the heat that you didn't let bodies lie around for several days. And once the person died and you could confirm it, you immediately put them in the tomb. So Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, which means Martha and Mary have been grieving for four days. And verse 19 seems to imply that, that, that this family was, was a prominent family in, in Jewish society because uh, there, it says that there are many people who are coming from Jerusalem, which is about two miles away. And they're walking over to Bethany uh, to come and comfort and to, to offer condolences to Mary and Martha over the loss of their brother. But this, this proximity to Jerusalem is also a reminder Right, that, that this is a dangerous situation. Jesus is a wanted man uh, among the religious authorities, and he's coming down into their neck of the woods. Uh, and so with all of these visitors from Jerusalem uh, there comforting Mary and Martha, uh, it is uh, certain uh, that word is going to get back to the Pharisees. And if you look over at chapter 11, verse 45, that is exactly what is going to happen after uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Because many of the Jews, therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. 
And what we're going to see there is that the Pharisees are going to gather together, and that's when they're going to say, okay, we really have to kill Jesus now. He must die. And they begin to conspire from that time forward, not just how to arrest him, but how they're going to arrest him and have him killed. So in a very real sense, this miracle, what we're seeing right now, is going to be the catalyst for Jesus being arrested and murdered at the Passover feast just a few weeks away. But Jesus was not concerned about the danger, right? He knew he was walking into danger. He encouraged his disciples to walk into that danger with him. Now, he was most concerned with doing the will of God. He was coming to raise Lazarus from the dead. And verses 17 through 19 set the stage uh, then for another interaction between Martha and Jesus. And this is what we're going to study this morning. Uh, and in this interaction that we're going to see is, uh, is Jesus is going to, to hear from Martha. And then he's going to, to guide Martha, as he always does when he has these personal conversations uh, with individuals in John's gospel. He's going to take the person wherever they are, wherever their faith is. Uh, he's going to lead them into a greater understanding of who he is what he is able to do, and how we are called to respond to him. And ultimately, what Martha is to believe. And as we study these verses today, they're going to instruct us concerning what faith is and what it is not. As Jesus instructs Martha, he's also going to instruct us. And we can ask, how does this passage grow our faith? How does it help our unbelief? What we're going to see is four clarifications about the nature of faith in, that the Bible calls us to have. And we generally would, would, would agree with that. What am I supposed to have? Faith. But then if we said, well, what does that mean? I think many of us would probably struggle uh, to explain what is meant by that. Faith can be an ambiguous term, right? Disney loves uh, faith. We are to have faith in faith. Or faith in ourselves. But, but is that what the Bible is calling us to? That's why these clarifications are going to be very important. And they're going to, to be insightful for us in those moments when we are struggling with unbelief. You may not say, well, I don't have unbelief in my heart. Well, do you ever ignore God's word? Now, do you ever question or doubt or say, well, that doesn't apply in this situation right here and right now? Those are little moments of unbelief in our lives that we need to come to grips with. And this passage this morning is going to to clarify some things for us regarding faith. The first clarification is seen uh, in verses 20 to 22. It is this, that faith is not a general belief in the power of Jesus. If you look with me at verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming... She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Martha and Mary were were sitting and receiving this line of comforters in their home. Uh, as was uh, traditional in that time. Uh, And uh, when Martha hears that that Jesus has come, what does she do? 
She stands up and she leaves the house and her sister behind. And she goes, presumably, outside of the house to speak with Jesus. And this is a, a tremendous honor that she is showing uh, because she's going in, uh, when she's supposed to be comforted, uh, she's going and speaking with Jesus. Now, and she speaks to Jesus as, as one who is deeply grieved. Uh, and th- there is a, you could say, a, a polite disappointment to her words. If only you had been here. There's a little bit of blame right there. Jesus, if you had been here, I wouldn't be grieving right now. My my sister and I would not be suffering. We wouldn't have this long line of mourners marching out from Jerusalem and coming into our house. A little bit of blame. And yet, interestingly, she also has a sense that Jesus is still special. That he is still a powerful prophet who has the ear of God. In essence, in verse 23, she says, But I know that whatever you ask, God will give to you. Now, and uh, even though she, she says this, I don't think that uh, it's even crossed her mind that Jesus is able to, to raise her brother from the dead. Uh, because later on, uh, in verse 39, when, when there's a couple uh, scenes later, and Jesus uh, walks to the tomb of Lazarus, uh, and he says, Open the tomb. Now, Martha interjects. If you look at verse 39, Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Right? She's not cheering Jesus on, like, Yes, you're going to raise him. She's like, No, this is going to be a really bad smell. The result of moving the stone away is not a resurrected brother. It's going to be a really bad smell. So even though on the one hand she's saying, uh, yes, anything that you ask, God will, will give to you. And there's still not a realization uh, of a resurrection from the dead maybe on the table. Which again, we are that, that mixture of belief and unbelief. Each and every one of us. Now James Montgomery Boyce in the, in the same, uh, would say this. He says, in the same way, many of us also seek to limit Jesus. We believe that he is able to do all that he says he will do, but not now and not here. At least we do not expect him to and are genuinely surprised or disbelieving that when he does act. And this is uh, a, a general belief in Jesus and in his power. Yes, Jesus is a, is a powerful guy and he's able to do special things, but I'm not sure that he can do something right here and right now. And this is the type of faith, this general faith uh, in Jesus that has popped up repeatedly in Jesus' ministry. Back in uh, John chapter 2, after Jesus cleansed the temple and performed many miracles, said that there were a group of people who had come and they were believing in Jesus. But there's a play on words there in the Greek. It says Jesus didn't believe in them. And he didn't entrust himself to them. Again, they they had a, a, a general generic faith. They liked the miracles, but they weren't really trusting in Jesus. In Mark's gospel, and also in Luke and in Matthew, Jesus tells a parable of different types of people, how people respond when hearing the message of the gospel. It's known as the parable of the sowers. And in Mark chapter 4, it says this, verse 14, Jesus explains the meaning of the parable to his disciples. He says, the sower sows the word. Uh, And these are the ones uh, who are beside the road, uh, where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. 
And in a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. And then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. And these are the ones that have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60 and 100 fold. There are, there are four soils, but how many of them have genuine faith? Only one. Uh, others receive the word, and for a time it looks like, hey, things are going to go well. They sprout up, but what eventually happens? Now, there's, no, there's no fruit because there is ultimately no root in Christ. So not all faith is actual faith in Christ, which is very sobering, right? Now, to, to think along those lines. Uh, So we have to examine our own faith then. One uh, commentator says, says this, It is perfectly true that many people believe that there is a God and think that what what is contained in the gospel is true. But they do so with the same judgment which anyone might use in accepting the truth of what is read in storybooks or what is seen by the eye. There are others who go further, for they regard God's word as an indisputable oracle. They do not at all despise its commandments, and they are to some extent moved by its promises. And we generally say that people like this are not without faith, but that is a misuse of words. They do not impugn God's word in an openly impious way and do not reject or deride it, but make a show of obeying it. Nevertheless, that is a shadow or semblance of faith which counts for nothing. It does not, therefore, deserve to be called faith. The Bible calls us to faith, but the faith that it calls us to is not merely a a general belief that Jesus existed at some point in time in the past. It's not a general faith uh, of, yes, I understand uh, that he can save me. Uh, I understand certain things about Jesus. That's not uh, the type of faith that the Bible calls us to. It is much, much more. But this is the the first clarification regarding faith that we see here. And then secondly, verses 23 and 24, we can make another clarification that faith is not an abstract understanding of theology. Verses 23 and 24, Jesus responds to, to Martha. He says, your brother will rise again. You know, she had just said, hey, if you had only been here, he would not have died. And Jesus in essence says, hey, don't worry. He will rise again. And Martha responds and says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Jesus seeks to, to reassure her by pointing to that future resurrection that we read about in 1 Corinthians 15. Right? That is indeed a hope that we have. Your brother will rise. Uh, and those are probably very similar words uh, that Jesus spoke to her as all of the other mourners who are coming through and, and seeking to comfort these two sisters. Hey, you will see your brother again. 
When the, when the dead are raised on the last day. This was a source of hope to the Jews, and it, was, it is a source of hope to us as Christians. And Martha, being a good Jewish girl, was convinced of this truth. And so she tells Jesus, I know that he's going to rise again. And with these words, it seems like Martha passes the theology test, right? End time events. She's got that down. But her answer also reveals that she has missed the point of what Jesus is saying. She has swung and missed, even though that she has said something that is doctrinally true. She's banking on a a distant theological event, but she is not trusting in Jesus. There is a disconnection between Jesus and her theology. There's a, there's a disconnection even between uh, the future res- resurrection and Jesus. Because what is Jesus taught throughout his gospel? Who is it that has the authority to raise the dead on the last day? It's him. What we see here is that knowledge about the Bible and theology is the beginning of faith, but in and of itself, it is not faith. There are, there are many professors uh, at secular uh, universities around the country who teach classes on the New Testament. Now, we had a friend who attended uh, the University of Southern California, and she took a, uh, a class on the New Testament, and she came and she said, my professor is not a believer, but, but he's teaching the Bible at a major university. She's like, how does that happen? Well, this professor would have been intimate with all of the, the, uh, the background and all of the details of the New Testament. But what was he missing? An actual personal faith in Christ. He knew lots of theology, lots of quotes, lots of saying. But he didn't know Jesus. Theologian Bruce Demarest says intellectual knowledge of God's saving plan, while absolutely necessary, is not sufficient for salvation. Correct beliefs must be followed by assent to their personal relevance. Another way of putting this is to say that knowledge of the mind must be followed by knowledge of the heart. And many people, maybe some of us here, uh, we seek our assurance of our salvation Uh, based upon our knowledge of the Bible or our knowledge of theology. I know I have a relationship with God because I know the Bible. It's kind of how we could summarize that that thought pattern. But is that really true? No. And again, this is where uh, Martha is right here and right now. She says, my faith is in a future resurrection. My brother will be raised on the last day. And Jesus is going to to see and understand where she is right here and right now. And now he's going to to seek to to transition her where she needs to be. She's going to instruct her concerning what true faith really is. And if faith is not just a general belief in Jesus, if it's not just an abstract understanding of theological doctrine, what is it? Well, Jesus is going to to clarify things further in verses 25 and 26. We could say this, that faith is knowing, assenting, and resting in Jesus. If you look with me at those verses, Jesus responds to Martha. Again, she said, I know that 
that Lazarus will be resurrected on the last day. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. After hearing Martha's question, Jesus is going to to guide her where she needs to be. Jesus is going to to relocate her faith. He's going to say, yes, theology is very, very important. But our theology needs to be rooted and grounded in a person. In Jesus himself. And, and this is what Jesus is striving to do. So you, you say you believe in the resurrection. He clarifies where do we look to or who do we look to for the resurrection? Him. Now, we, we've come to another one of these I am statements that we've seen throughout John's gospel. Uh, and each one of them uh, is a self-revelation of who Jesus is and what he has come to do, what he is capable of doing. And as we've talked in, in the past, each one of these statements is very emphatic. Uh, The the language here is Jesus saying, I myself am, and then fill in the blank. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is uh, the way, the truth, and the life. And here, he is the, the resurrection and the life. Meaning there is no resurrection, there is no eternal life apart from Jesus. And with this statement... Jesus is is seeking to to, to transition her understanding, where her hope is. Not a theological doctrine, but our hope is in a person. And theology is very important, and we can't ever seek to to divide Jesus from his word. So don't don't interpret me that way. Jesus and his word are inseparable, and they're never at odds against one another. But, but here, our trust is in the Word because we trust in Jesus. He is the one who upholds our theology, and our hope must be located in Him. He's the, he's the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. And Jesus wants Martha and you and I to look specifically to Him for our hope of resurrection and eternal life. And so Jesus continues in, in the text. Uh, He uh, describes what takes place among those who place their hope in him. He says, whoever believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. You're like, well, how does that work? Right? How is it that even if you die, you still live? Well, he's speaking of, of physical death. If you die physically, if you believe in Christ, you are still going to live. Uh, death is not going to, to have a sting to you. Again, even as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, that those who believe in Jesus will die in this life, and yet they will live spiritually for eternity. Because Jesus is able to raise the dead and give life to whomever he desires. If you turn back with me to, to John chapter 6, this is something that uh, he has touched on repeatedly over and over again. Now, as he is uh, taught uh, the crowds and is, as he has taught his disciples. John chapter 6, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. There is always a hope of the resurrection on the last day. Uh, and that's what Martha was emphasizing. But what is she not emphasizing and focusing upon? Uh, the belief in Jesus. The, the entrusting of herself to him. Verse 44 echoes this same truth in chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, the resurrection is always at the forefront of Jesus' teaching uh, throughout this gospel. But again, here, Jesus redirects uh, her hope and where her thoughts are uh, to be upon him rather than just upon uh, a distant uh, theological event. And then Jesus makes another statement. Right? says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Right? And uh, this is very emphatic in the Greek. There's a, a double negative, which doesn't cancel out uh, like it does in the English, but it makes it uh, extra, extra emphatic. Though everyone who, who lives and believes in Jesus will never, ever die. And here, Jesus is speaking of spiritual death. First, death uh, in the previous verse was speaking about physical death. Even though uh, those who are in Christ die, uh, we still live. And here, those uh, who live and believe in Jesus will never die. And uh, we can also observe that there is a connection between living and believing in Jesus. That those who have eternal life are those who believe in Him. And no one has spiritual life or eternal life apart from Jesus. And, and these statements from Jesus, they, they present a little bit of a paradox to us, right? To all who trust in him. If we believe in Jesus, even if we die, we live. And if we believe in him, we live in him, we will never die. One, one pastor and commentator says this, this paradox brings out the great truth that physical death is not the important thing. For the heathen or the unbeliever, death may be thought of as the end, but not so for those who believe in Christ. They may die in the sense that they pass through the door we call physical death, but they will not die in the fuller sense. Death for them is but the gateway to further life and fellowship with God. And that must be our view of death, not because of just a theological doctrine, not because of a, a general belief in uh, the power of Jesus, but because we specifically have faith in Jesus. We entrust ourselves to him specifically. But the faith that Jesus is speaking uh, about here, when he says, anyone who believes in me, again, we have to really dive into that. There's different types of faith. So what does he mean here? Well, again, whoever believes is, is the one who is knowing, assenting, and resting in Jesus. But, but what does that mean? Well, let's think about this for a second. Uh, uh, faith begins where? Well, where does faith have to begin? You have to, to know something intellectually before you are able to believe it, right? You cannot believe what you do not know. And so faith begins with knowing the truth about who Jesus is. Uh, and what he has done. But then, knowing should pass into assenting. Uh, and that's a word that we don't typically use in everyday life, right? 
Uh, but assenting uh, is, is really in, in agreement. And you could say in a, it's in agreement uh, uh, between your head and your heart that what you know about Jesus is actually true. Now, again, I would say it's the difference between knowing the answer for the test and really be leaving the answer. Right? You probably know uh, lots of uh, facts that you don't necessarily believe. You, your heart would not give assent uh, to what you know in your head. And I would say sometimes the greatest distance in the Christian life is between our head and our heart. That, that we know the right answer, but we struggle to believe what we know. Right? This is why we say with that father in Mark 9, I do believe, but at the same time, Help my unbelief. And then ultimately, knowing and assenting should lead to completely trusting and resting in Jesus. For we are depending upon Him alone. We're not looking to ourselves. We're not looking to others. We are trusting uh, our eternal livelihood into His care. And if we have not come to that place of complete trust and rest in Jesus alone, then we have not truly believed in him as we are called to. Back in in 1958, uh, America's first commercial uh, uh, airliner uh, began to be in service uh, with a flight of a a Boeing 707. And a month after that first flight, uh, there was a a traveler on a, a piston engine, uh, DC-6, it's a propeller-driven uh, plane rather than that, that jet uh, air service of the, the Boeing 707. Uh, and so there's these two passengers on, a, on this uh, propeller, DC-6, and uh, one passenger strikes up a conversation with the other. Uh, and the, the passenger finds out that the guy that he's talking to is actually an engineer for Boeing. Uh, and he's worked on these brand new jet engines. Uh, and uh, and so uh, the passenger asked the, the engineer, so tell me about this. And the engineer goes on and on about how good uh, this engine is and how safe it is because Boeing has a long track history of uh, making engines for the, the military with the, the, D, the B-17 and the B-52. Uh, and it's just going to be wonderful for the, the 707 to be used uh, for commercial uh, jet service. And then the, the, the traveler just asked the engineer if he himself had flown on that brand new 707 airplane. And do you know what the engineer said? Well, I'll wait a little bit longer until it gets tested a little bit more. There's the disconnect, right? He's, he's, he's talking the talk. Look at how great this engine is. Okay, are you really going to trust it? Well... I won't do that just yet. And that is exactly how many of us believe in Jesus. We talk the talk, right? We'll profess with our mouth. We know certain facts. But we've struggled to give assent in our hearts. And we are unwilling to actually entrust ourselves to him. We're unwilling to actually say, Jesus, here's my entire life. It's yours to guide and direct however you desire. Everything that your word says, I will obey it. I will submit myself to you. And I entrust my heart, my soul, my eternal life into your hands. That's, that's what true faith looks like. Not just knowing facts. 
not just being in agreement with it, but actually acting upon what we know. That's what it comes down to. John Calvin says this, We must not think that Christian faith is a pure and simple knowledge of God or an understanding of the Scripture which flutters about in the brain without touching the heart. That is the opinion we normally hold of things which are validated for us by some reason which sounds probable. But Christian faith is rather a firm and solid assurance of the heart by which we cling securely to the mercy of God which is promised to us through the gospel. And our faith is not in mere ideas of the afterlife. Our, our faith is not just in a future resurrection. You know, we, we have the hope of a future resurrection, but we have the hope of a future resurrection because who was first resurrected? Jesus. He's the source of that future hope. And, and He is the one, He is the person that we are to look to. And Jesus drives home this point right here, right now with Martha. Because look at how verse 26 ends. He has talked about uh, what it looks like to believe in him. And all who believe in him will not uh, die ever. And then what does he say to her? Very simple, very direct question. He says, do you believe this? Right? Again, shifting her focus to him. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? If you're going to have any hope in the future, you must look to him and him alone. Again, very simple, very profound. And it's a question that each and every one of us needs to, to answer. But we need to ask it within our hearts and in our souls. And, and we need to be honest about this. It doesn't help anybody to be dishonest with ourselves about where we really are in our faith. And it's actually very helpful to say, I know certain truths, but I am so struggling to believe them right now. I have doubts. I'm, I'm not sure about this. We, we need to be honest with ourselves, and we need to, to drive in deeper to Christ. And where you go when you have those questions. I always tell this when I was working with youth students. When you have doubts, it's okay to doubt those doubts. Okay? You, you tend to, to doubt everything that you've been taught, but you don't doubt the doubts. And, and who you go to for answers when you have doubts will determine a lot of the direction and the trajectory of where you end up, right? If you have doubts and you go ask that atheist professor who's teaching the New Testament... He's going to give you certain answers, right? Uh, but if you have doubts and you go to uh, your growth group leader or an elder in the church, they're going to lead you in a very different direction. And when we have our doubts, we need to go to Jesus. And he is the person that we are called to look to in faith. He is the one we must believe in and entrust ourselves to. Does your faith need to be relocated. Right, Jesus is relocating Martha's faith. Yes, theology of the future resurrection is good, but Jesus is where our faith needs to be located. And if that needs to happen, there's no better time than now. now there's no better day than today. 
look to Jesus in faith, knowing with your head the truth about him, uh, assenting in your heart, being in agreement, what I know is true, and then being willing to, to follow with your, uh, with your hands, with your life, in obedience to him, entrusting yourself to him. That is what genuine faith looks like. But there's also another clarification about faith here in our text. A fourth and final clarification in verse 27. It said that faith is, or faith involves, a personal profession about Jesus. Jesus ended verse 26 with that very simple question, Do you believe this? And now we get to see Martha's response. She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She makes a a profession of faith that shows that her faith has been relocated. Right? Now she understands, wait, I need to hope in Jesus, not just in a, a distant resurrection. But she is now looking to Jesus in faith. And that the word I believe is really emphatic in, in the Greek. I have believed. There's a great emphasis there. She now has a personal trust in Jesus. And then uh, she, in this profession of faith, she gives uh, three statements of what she believes about Jesus. Again, this is where we can't just do away with theology. I'm not saying that. Theology is very, very important, but it must be inseparable with our relationship with Christ. Here's what she believes about Jesus. Number one, that he is the Christ. She's saying, you are the Messiah. You are the one that our nation has been waiting for. Long anticipating your arrival. She says, you are that one. Secondly, she says, you are the son of God. Meaning that he is equal with God. Martha was paying attention to all that Jesus was saying back, back in John chapter 10. In John chapter 8 and John chapter 5, she, she has come to the conclusion uh, that Jesus is who he says he is. He's been saying that he's the son of God, and that's who he is. She is professing that now. And then she says that he, Jesus is the one who is coming into the world. That's a little bit more ambiguous. What does that mean? Well, you and I, there, there was a uh, a time that we were born, but, but we didn't come into this world. We've all, we have always existed in this world. But Jesus, uh, because he existed outside of this world and is the creator of all things, he is the only one who comes into our world. Uh, and th- this is the, the message of John's gospel, right? Jesus is the one sent by the Father who comes into the world. This was established way back in even John chapter 1, verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And this is the, uh, the, the distinction between who we are and who Jesus is. So this is a, a very, very profound profession of faith that, that Martha is making here. And again, we just read in, in Romans 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In, in this verse, we have a picture of what it looks like to confess faith in Christ. 
And Martha's profession of faith here is very similar to what many others in the New Testament have said. There are many different professions of faith uh, that we have seen. Uh, Peter in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Nathaniel in John chapter 1 verse 49 says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Peter again in John chapter 6 says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Thomas, in John chapter 20, verse 28, My Lord and my God, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live by uh, faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And what's really sad is that when we think of Martha... What do we typically think about? Her words back in Luke chapter 10. When Jesus comes to the house of Mary and Martha. And uh, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha is busy serving. And what does she come and do? She comes and complains to Jesus. Aren't you going to make my sister help? And we remember that. That's the first thing that comes to mind. When we think of Martha. But I would say this right here, John chapter 11, verse 27, this profession of faith should be what we remember about Martha. Right? Anyone else want to be remembered for their worst moment? Or, right? any, any, any volunteers for that? Or do we want to be remembered for our faith? So let's remember Martha for her faith. What she says here. Our, our worst moments are not what identify us. It is our faith in Christ that identifies us. It's our faith in Christ that brings forgiveness and reconciliation with God. It's our faith in Christ that brings adoption, justification, sanctification. So many theological truths that are so rich. But it all begins with each of us as an individual, making a profession of faith in Jesus. Do you know who he is? Are you convinced in your heart that he is who he says he is? And then are you actually willing to entrust yourself to him in faith? Where you have come to the point in resting and trusting completely and absolutely in Him. Martha did that here. And the Apostle John wants each and every one of us to do the same. That, that is why, why he wrote this Gospel. At the end of the Gospel, he writes this, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. See, John is, is writing and recording this so that we uh, would make that same profession as Martha has made. But believing in His name is not a general belief, it's not an abstract understanding, it is a personal knowing, assenting, and trusting in Him. In the Son of God who lived and died for sinners. James Montgomery Boyce tells of a, a tradition in India that some magicians 
are able to, to take a, a coil of rope uh, and throw it up into the sky. Uh, and then they have a, a young boy climb up uh, into the sky on the rope. And when the, the boy has, has reached the sky, uh, the rope falls down and the boy never comes down. And it's been shown that this does not actually happen. No one has ever seen it done, but it's become a, a fascinating tradition in India, much like our uh, tall tales and uh, stories about you know, Paul Bunyan and others. But it's a wonderful illustration of sometimes how we view faith. That some people view faith like a rope coiled beside them. It's there, right? And, and when they need it, when their life comes to an end, what will they do? They'll take that rope, they'll throw it into the sky, and they will climb up uh, into heaven in their own efforts. Right? But what we see over and over again in John's Gospel, that is not... That's not salvation. That is not faith that the Bible calls us to. It's faith in yourself. It's Disney theology, right? But it's not the faith that Jesus calls us to. True faith is different. True faith is understanding that uh, if we're going to get to heaven by rope, uh, the rope has to come down to us. We're not going to throw it up there. The rope comes down to us from heaven, and then faith, also a gift from heaven and by faith that rope is lowered and by faith that rope carries us up and we're not climbing up no 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 that rope just raises up into heaven and what we see here that rope is christ said earlier in john chapter one jacob uh, or Jesus spoke to Nathaniel about Jacob's ladder. In essence, saying, I am the ladder. Jesus is, is the bridge between earth and heaven. And what we have to come to, to know and absolutely be convinced of is that Jesus is that rope. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the resurrection and the life. And that we are to entrust ourselves fully and completely in Him. Not just with mere knowledge, not with lip service, not a general face like, yeah, Jesus is out there and he's somewhat special and he can do stuff. But no, he is my Savior, my only hope in life and death because he is the resurrection and the life. 